0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyas Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who's lived with a disability all of his life. As a child, he said he was treated extraordinarily well and received excellent health care. In our conversation, he talks about what that is like for him as a man in his 40s, and he says,
1: I don't have a local health care physician that I can turn to and say, If something really bad happens tomorrow, I have confidence that I'm going to be treated effectively.
0: My guest on the podcast today is Gustavo Serafini. You're very, very welcome to the show, Gustavo. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. And I want to start with your background, which is somebody who has a significant disability. Talk to us about that. When did it start and how did the first few years of your life unfold
1: first of all moyes it's an absolute pleasure to be here i am in such esteemed company with all of your guests and yourself and i i so appreciate the work that you're doing and thank you so much for this it's a real honor in terms of my disability it's congenital i was born with it so i was born in a very very small town in brazil and when i was born in 1976 there were only 12 documented cases of PFFD, which is proximal focal femoral deficiency. My father was a physician, so he attended a conference and met with a bunch of doctors from all over the world trying to figure out, okay, clearly Brazil in the the mid-70s was not going to be conducive to fulfilling my potential, to getting treatment, to figuring out what I could be in the world. And so he met with doctors from Japan, Canada, Europe, and uh, settled on the United States. So there were some doctors who said, Gustavo will never walk. He'll never be anything, basically disregarding me. Other doctors recommended some substantial surgeries, but the person in the United States, we settled on We only stayed there for six months, but then we found a doctor in Baltimore, Maryland named Dr. Epps, who was just a phenomenal presence in our lives for only for a few years, but he gave my parents the fundamentals to how to think about what my disability, what were some of the pitfalls, what were some of the things that they really needed to fight and advocate for to give me the opportunities to have a chance to succeed in life. So some of the primary things that Dr. Epps really focused on was be very careful about any any operations because those things tend to be permanent and have repercussions down the road. He was of the opinion to let my body evolve and adapt to see what, what my limitations are really going to be, use prosthetics, use, use orthotics on my... I use an orthotic on my left foot and a prosthetic on my right foot, my right leg, because my right leg is actually fused. My My hip is fused at the bone. So I have very limited mobility on on my right side. And so getting me into occupational therapy and physical therapy to teach me how to walk, how to stand, how to navigate the world and manipulate the world. And one of the big things that they told my mother was... Make sure do whatever you have to do to get Gustavo into a normal school because the schools at that time for children with a disability not the way to go. And so she did. We fought. She got me into a Montessori school. The occupational therapist helped, and then from there it was still difficult as we moved around the country. But at least we had a foundation, and and my mom could say, "Look, Gustavo went to this Montessori school for two years. He did fine. He adapted fine." you know, there's not a whole lot of things that you need to accommodate him for. He'll, he'll figure it out. And so that really gave us the foundation to build, start building the journey.
0: What exactly were you de- living with at that time?
1: I was born with one arm. PFFT is a shortening of the femur. There's different degrees of variation that can happen across the limb. So on my left side, it's still significant, but it's not it's not nearly as bad as on my right side. My right side, my hip is fused. The leg is even shorter. Um, I had to do some Achilles surgeries when I was young because my ankles were turned out too much. And so they tried to straighten them as much as possible and give me more mobility. And then I also don't have tibula on my left and right leg. I'm shorter than average, obviously missing an arm. And my thighs are much, much shorter than most people's.
0: So what did this mean for you as a young person? Now you're talking about living in the United States in the 1980s, going to a normal school, you would have had your teenage years living with this disability. What was that like?
1: The way I see my disability is that there are some things in life where the disability becomes very prominent. And then there are other places where it's just kind of in the background and it doesn't affect much. So I think going through school, the challenge was how do I make friends? Am I going to be bullied? How do I navigate this kind of these social spaces and physically mobility-wise? You know, there's definitely been schools that I didn't attend that would have been good schools otherwise because they had way too many stairs or the campus was just the school itself was way too big. We looked for smaller schools. Thankfully, my parents did well enough over time where they could afford private schools back then and that made a huge difference. And I recognize just how lucky I was in that respect. In terms of children, it it was really, kids are are so interesting because even today, when they approach me, you can tell pretty quickly which ones are kind of mean-spirited and which ones just approach me with curiosity. And the people that I became friends with quite easily approached me with curiosity. And they said, look, what happened to you? I explained what happened. And then it was like, okay, let's be friends. We enjoy playing a video game or we enjoy swimming or whatever it was. The friendship could evolve because the disability, it was there, but it didn't get in the way of just connecting with somebody. I think the teachers, I'm a reasonably smart human being so that academically, it was never, never an issue. Occasionally, like a teacher would say, "Okay, he has to walk from one side of the campus to the other and and get his books." So there was a little bit of leniency, like if I was a couple of minutes late to a class or certain physical education requirements I didn't have to do. I didn't have to run a mile in however many minutes, and I didn't have to change school uniforms. There were some adaptations too. so a little like kind of the fringe things were accommodated pretty quickly. The core aspect of doing homework, getting to class, carrying books around. That was never, never much of an issue.
0: So how did things work out for you? You went to school. You've done phenomenally well since then. So talk about what happened through school. You weren't held back in many ways, but in some ways you had some challenges. What were your results like and how did you then go from that where you are now?
1: School for me was pretty easy for the most part. Until I got to university, I went to University of Chicago and that was a big challenge. The weather was... Growing up in California, the weather was a challenge in Chicago, getting through the snow and the ice and there weren't a lot of accommodations there. And I really leaned on friends for help, helping get books at the bookstores and things like that. And occasionally... Missing classes because of the weather. Again, the professors were usually understanding of that. But I think the the biggest challenge for me was figuring out my identity. Growing up, there was my parents really instilled a sense of tenacity, of fight, of grit and determination. And I I think a lot of that came from being immigrants in a country and not having family here, not having friends here, and so. We were a very close-knit family and we relied on each other a lot and slowly built up friendships and networks, but that tenacity to fight for what you want, to have the, the grit and perseverance and determination to say, I want to move from A to B. If I really want to get there, how do I start problem solving through that? What are my challenges going to be? What do I need to change in my routine, change in my lifestyle in order to get where I want to go. So problem solving became just an innate skill over time. But the biggest challenge for me moving into college, graduate school, law school, etc., was trying to figure out who I was, who I wanted to be in the world, and what contribution I could actually make. And really on those deeper, those deeper layers as we go through, move through adolescence of what does this disability mean? What am I going to let it define or not define? And how am I going to present myself as a mature, intelligent adult in the world? Those were the bigger challenges for me is really coming to terms with what does it mean in my adult life? There was also a big gap in care because I had excellent health care as a child through the different children's hospitals and moving into adulthood. I'd go to physicians who've never seen a case like mine, who didn't really understand what was going on all of the guidance and all of the, the decision-making just kind of went out the window. Like there, there is no guide in the healthcare system that says, Gustavo, this is what it means for you to have a prosthetic and a brace as you get older. These are the things you're going to have to watch out for. This is how your body is going to start to break down. Apparently, that data doesn't really exist, which is makes things more difficult.
0: Yeah, that is a Significant issue, and I want to explore that with you because notwithstanding all of that, you you've managed to, to do wonderful things. So, how did you navigate a system that wasn't designed for the transition from childhood to adulthood? We hear this a lot in chronic illness that when a child moves into the adult healthcare system, that it becomes very much more difficult. How did you navigate that? Because you did, you, you managed notwithstanding.
1: I'm still navigating it. Again, in my 20s, I was very healthy, very physically active. A lot of the healthcare that I needed wasn't really super important. So it wasn't anything I was going to get blood work, everything's okay. And that was kind of that's been the experience. Getting into my 40s now, where I'm starting to have some some injuries and I had to recover from that. That's been a real challenge. And for me, What has worked out is through knowing people down here through my network, I was able to find some amazing physical therapists. And those physical therapists was like, it was like going into an office for the first time and not feeling any fear. They've never worked on anybody with PFFD, but they got right in there with curiosity and with respect. And, and they solved the problems. Like I'm injury free now. And now we're working on strengthening my body, building my resilience back up, getting back to fitness. I went to three physicians down here and had miserable experiences. So I still don't have a good answer on the physician side. Thankfully, I, you know, I know BJ Miller and he's an advisor now and he's been extremely helpful, but I don't have a local healthcare physician that I can turn to and say, if something really bad happens tomorrow, I have confidence that I'm going to be treated effectively.
0: Where do you think the problem is in that scenario? Is it that physicians simply panic when they see somebody with a condition they've not seen before? Is it that they are so busy doing other things that they don't have the time to investigate and learn about that? Or is it something else?
1: I think it's all of the above. I think that physicians, at least here in the United States, and again, my father was a physician. I've seen healthcare change over the decades now. I think most physicians see me as a liability, as somebody that they need to be very cautious with. There's an element of, of fear there. There's also a lack of time. And the other thing that's that I think is missing there is they don't seem to be Trained on disability, like the the disabilities that they see, they saw in residency and they don't have the right, maybe follow up education there to understand what it is that they're working with. The people who I have found that do have an experience with my disability are surgeons and as talented as they are as surgeons, their, the propensity seems to be, let's fix it with surgery. And I don't have the, I don't have the same tolerance for risk in my mid-40s that I did when I was in my 20s.
0: So how do you see the next few years? You've got, as you say, to your 40s, you've now got some problems that have been associated with the disability. Where do you think you'll go from here? And How do you see it all working out?
1: I will continue my search for physicians in the United States, and I would imagine that I'm going to have to travel to go see them, whether it's in New York or Pittsburgh or California, wherever it is. And maybe it's, it'll have to be international. I think the thing that's missing is the lack of data. We don't know, but when you look at the decision-making process as a patient, how do I know what a good decision is when the doctors don't have the data to say your probability for this outcome is this versus that? You know, I asked, a physician that i went to see recently who's a, an expert in pffd regardless of whether or not i do a surgery which i didn't need but for argument's sake what are the outcomes what are the studies out there for people with a disability to say how many of us end up in a wheelchair just from years of prosthetic use years of using braces how can i expect my body to break down he said i don't know we don't we don't study that so that's the real challenge is how do we bring in some disruptive technology, some different way of thinking in the healthcare system to say, look, we need to start collecting this data. We need to start studying what happens to people with a, with a physical disability over time so that we can give better advice, custom, more custom-tailored advice to that person's situation. Generally speaking, my, my goal is I'm going to be as fit as I can. I'm going to be as strong as I can. I need to prioritize my health before anything else. Which, as an entrepreneur, I have succumbed to. You know, I've failed at that. I've made those mistakes too many times, and I, I cannot afford to do that again.
0: The key thing about all of this is that you are you. Your resilience. It's your determination. As you say, you're smarter than the average guy, and there's no doubt about that. How do you think that that plays out? How do you think that that has Allowed you to develop the resilience? What is it in you that makes you the person that you are? Or do you even know?
1: I think I'm still trying to figure that out. In studying philosophy and theology, I came to the conclusion that whatever meaning we give to our lives is a decision that we make. And so we can create value and significance and meaning for ourselves. We are empowered to do that. I draw a lot of inspiration and resilience from the notion of leaving the world or my little portion of the world a little bit better than how i found it that's very meaningful to me it drives me to keep going it feeds my curiosity that's why i get up in the morning that's why i do what i do and and i don't know if that makes me unique to somebody else but that's where i draw my my inspiration and my energy from is let me see if i can just make this world a little bit better than how i left it and let me try to just keep feeding my curiosity. My fear of death and mortality really comes down to not having the time or the opportunity to keep fulfilling and exploring my potential and my, my limitations and, and just being curious about the world and staying curious about the world. That's the fear of death outside of that is just, I want to go when I want to go. I don't want to, you know, but we don't have that choice. So that's, that's my struggle and, And that's what keeps me motivated to say, you know what, I'm going to make tomorrow a little bit better. I'm going to keep at this a little bit longer.
0: I think it does answer the question to some extent. But there's another question I want to follow up with, which is where do you get your energy from? For most of us, walking across the car park, going across to get a coffee, whatever, is not a big deal. For you, it takes a little bit of effort because you've got to navigate a world that's not designed for people need help opening doors, where do you get the energy to do what you do?
1: It's interesting because growing up, I did play a lot of sports. Like I said, I was very physically active. I do swim and weightlift and row. So I think a prosthetist in my past explained it really well. Most people have some very big muscle groups that they use to move. And so The secondary muscles they use for balance, I use a lot more secondary muscles and core muscles to move. So for me, playing a sport like tennis, I could do for extended periods of time when I was in good shape because it's start, stop, start, stop. I can rest in between. But walking a mile or two miles or whatever it is, that's very challenging because I have to rely on those secondary muscles to actually move. So for me, where do I get the energy from I know that it's passe and and not really in style right now to to talk about willpower, but I think that willpower for me is still a very powerful tool. And I see it more like Angela Duckworth sees it in grit, which is, it's just the desire to move from one place to another, to just take one small step. That's the hardest thing. As long as you have that, we can create the habits and nurture the perseverance and have the support structures around us that feed that passion, that feed that desire and fuel. So her version is more nuanced and I, and I approve of that, but the fundamental desire is just still that thing inside of me that just says, I want to do something with my life. I want to participate. I want to make a contribution because I can. So why, why not? What, what do I have to do otherwise? I can sit on the couch all day and go into some very dark places. But that's just not conducive to having the meaningful life that I'd like to have.
0: Thank you. You have a unique perspective on the world. You have a perspective on the world from a place that few of us would choose to go, but that you're there and you're making a difference, clearly making a difference. Pretend you're talking about somebody else. Talk about the things that you've achieved over the last 40 years.
1: Obviously, I went to some really good schools. I have a law degree. I have a master's. I was studying to be an academic. I was really interested in Buddhism and Western philosophy. So getting through all that schooling was was challenging but interesting. But I think the, the things that I'm more proud of is being a small business owner for 15 years and having the, the luck and the mentorships and the drive to turn that business into something stable and successful and growing has been, for me, an amazing achievement. I'm also really proud of the podcast that I started in March called Enabled Disabled, where we are really exploring and diving into disability and creating a safe space for people to tell their stories, to share their work. I, I see myself as a conduit for people who work with people with disabilities, who have friends with a disability, who are just interested in the community. But we're really looking at how can we contribute? How can we participate? The amount of potential, human potential, that's being lost every day just because of biases or not not being structural inequalities, all these factors. I think I just got to the point where I said enough. I've been so lucky. I've been so fortunate to be where I'm at. I want to help change this. I want to help change this conversation and get people to understand us from a totally different perspective.
0: We will make sure that all that you're doing is in our show notes so that our listeners can follow up. Gustavo Serafini, you are a testament to the strength and the creativity of the human spirit. You inspire us. And for that, we are deeply grateful. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And again, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for what you do. And, and thank you for trying to make things better as well.
0: The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the thejournalhealthdesign.com.